Okay. I'm hoping, I have a couple of slides of objectives. I'm hoping by the end of our time here that you would actually know what burns are potentially serious. You would be able to assess them in terms of size and depth, come up with a plan of care, um, understand some of the physiology, uh, how to resuscitate one. Is that in the way? Oh, you know what? Let me put it on. Yeah, let me put it, it on slideshow. Yeah. I can do that. Better. Um, talk about how we monitor people and uh, and actually how we um, monitor them dur mostly during the resuscitation. So you know, we're just going to focus on kind of that early part. We're not going to talk about what happens in the hospital or rehab or uh, surgery or any of those things. Some of the early complications that might arise and then some of the patients that don't meet the um, kind of some of the, the uh, fluid protocols that we have in place. So before we talk about burns, let's talk about, you know, what are we talking about? Probably 20 years ago, we had 150 burn centers in the United States. Now down to 129. I was one of four states that has lost burn centers in the last two years. And right now, we're the only burn center that's verified by the American College of Surgeons. There are um, states out west that have no burn centers and might be even six or eight hours by fixed wing um, from a burn center. So if you think of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, um, uh, North Dakota, there, there's not even a burn center. And if you think about, you know, the geography and the square miles that that encompasses, there are folks that are a long way away from a burn center. You're fortunate here, you know, we've got a burn center here. Next closest is Maywood, Illinois, which is 225 miles. Then we've got Minneapolis, uh, Kansas City, and Omaha. So within 500 miles, we've got, we've got four burn centers that are all verified by the American College of Surgeons. And we know some things about people that get admitted to burn centers. About two million people a year will come to the U.S. to emergency rooms, emergency treatment centers, claiming to have been burned and seeking treatment. And of those two million, probably 50,000 will require hospitalization. Now only 20,000 will need to be admitted to burn centers. So we're not going to talk about the 60% of burn patients that can be taken care of by internists, family practitioners, plastic surgeons, um, general surgeons, um, and anybody else who could take care of a patient but that doesn't need the whole continuum of care that comes with a burn treatment center. We're just going to look at the 20,000 that get admitted to burn centers that need the whole thing that Matt is now experiencing for the month. So, believe it or not, we spend a billion dollars every year just on those 20,000 patients. And by direct costs, I mean from the time they get to the burn center until the day they leave the hospital and go to a nursing home, uh, uh, home with physical therapy, occupational therapy, vocational rehabilitation, whatever it is that they get, that's the three billion in the indirect costs. This is not time lost from work or or lost productivity due to lost lives. I, I didn't even factor, because that, that's, you know, so much more. 
So if you just, from the time they get burned until the time they're back to work and to the highest level of wellness they can be, again, that's $4 billion for those 20,000 patients. If you think about that, that's, you know, per patient, we're pretty much a high ticket item. You know, if you, how much got spent on all the newly diagnosed diabetics last year, which is 800,000 people, probably not $4 billion. So um, pretty, pretty costly. Um, who are we talking about? This could actually be the title of the talk, couldn't it? For those of you who have experienced the burn service or have taken care of burn patients, you realize that it's actually, burns are a disease of the poor, aren't they? It's, a, it's kind of a special group of people. It probably wouldn't be the people that are sitting in this room today that we would see in our burn treatment center. It would be the age extremes, children and elderly, and we're talking under five and over 55. That's kind of scary. Um, folks who are disabled and might not be able to get out of a vehicle or a house. Um, people in the lower socioeconomic status who probably have substandard housing, probably don't have smoke alarms. Um, military personnel, right now one in three injuries over in Iraq is a burn injury. Yeah, I think 31%, so that's pretty high. And then, shockingly, drugs and alcohol. <clears throat> so we'll preach just, just for a moment to you. I hope that everybody in this room has a smoke alarm, at least one, on every level of your current residence, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. You can either take the kind that you have to change the batteries, you should do it twice a year when you change your clocks, or they, you know, the smoke alarms that they have now are good for 10 years. They, you know, you don't, they're, they're all completely self-contained. It's pretty hard to get them apart. Or you can actually have the kind that's hardwired into a security system that monitors it for you or into the fire department so that when the alarm goes off, they call. If somebody doesn't answer the phone, they send someone out to rescue whoever is in the house. So, you know, please do that. The other thing uh, I'd like you to do is you and whoever lives in your current domicile, please have a plan. Practice it once or twice a year. Discuss it so that you know you're going to meet at the maple tree in John's yard. That's the meeting place. Everybody will be there so that Chris doesn't run back in to get the dog or the kid, but they're already out and they went someplace else. So, you know, we, we've had some bad things happen. So please, practice it once or twice a year. Have a plan. You know, know what you're going to do. What do you take with you? There you go. There you go. Take the pets. Take the kids. Take the wife and get out. Everything else can be replaced. As, you know, as difficult as that would be. But we can't replace you and you can't replace your family members. How long do you have to get out? You wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and it's dark and there's smoke and the alarms are going off and that's what wakes you up. How long do you have? Four minutes. If you wake up like I do at two in the morning, that's not a long time, right? I don't know whether to turn off the phone, answer the pager, you know, it can be pretty confusing. So seriously, four minutes is about all you have before your CO2 will be high enough, your carboxyhemoglobin levels will be high enough, you will be rendered unconscious. So just get out and let the fire department do their thing. Don't be brave, don't try to fight it, just get out. Burn centers have changed a bit since I was a resident. 
we've we've had some improvements in in burn care that have actually um, decreased the mortality rate every decade. Um, the Coconut Grove fire in 1942 in in Boston was actually a thing that kind of kicked this off. And by the 1950s, we discovered that people actually needed to be resuscitated, that there was kind of a fifth kind of shock, which is burn shock. It has some components of other things, and we'll talk about the physiology. But we started discovering that you had to resuscitate people. Um, in the 1960s, a couple of very intelligent people discovered that if you could put a topical antimicrobial in a delivery vehicle, and uh, he happened to use his wife's cold cream, that's why Silva Dean has its, has its current um, feel to it, but he wanted something that was moist and kept the burns moist, but had an antibiotic in it. That's how we got silvadine and sulfamylon. Um, that went a long way to um, decreasing the mortality rate from burns. Then we discovered that you need to feed burns, that their metabolic rates are very high because the burn patients used to be starving to death in front of our eyes and we didn't understand that put a tube down and supplement their nutrition. In the 80s, we discovered that they need monitoring like other critical care patients, and as critical cares started coming into their own, and we discovered, you know, invasive monitoring and uh, intensive support and ventilatory support. We moved burns into that realm as well, making it uh, a critical care area. And then finally, we came up with the idea that early burn excision, it wasn't enough just to put the topical antimicrobials on, but we really needed to do early burn excision, and sometimes we even started during the resuscitation now. So get that burn wound excised, get it covered with something, then graft them over the next couple of weeks. And when you take all these things together, this is really what's um, helped our uh, decrease our mortality rate to the low levels we have in the United States. So if we talk a little bit about how do you take care of a burn? A burn is a specialized form of trauma, isn't it? We call it burn trauma, thermal trauma. So we need to hearken back to how do you take care of trauma patients. So we're back to our ABCDE. A is airway with C-spine control when it's, when it's appropriate. B is breathing. C is circulation. D is disability. And E is exposure or everything else. Once we've attended to the ABCs, which we can do fairly quickly, we're going to do a secondary survey um, because just because they have a thermal trauma doesn't mean they can't have a blunt trauma or a penetrating trauma or all three. And if we decide we need to protect somebody's airway, and we'll talk about what constitutes uh, airways in jeopardy, we don't have very long if we you know, decide we need to protect that airway. Sometimes we decide we need to do it very quickly. So as you're drawing up your drugs and you've got that 90 seconds, you need to get, you need to really cut to the chase. You need to get that, those nuggets of information that you need to know right then. Because you may not be able to talk to them for a long time. They might be intubated for a long time. What do you need to know? We're surgeons. We come up with the ample mnemonic. This is what we really need to know. A in the ample mnemonic, A is what? Allergies. M is medications. P is Past medical history. You notice it's not past surgical history. I don't really care if somebody's had a hernia repair or had their gallbladder out. Not relevant. What things am I interested in when I put the M and the P together? What things am I worried about that's going to make my patient have a worse outcome? Remember, burn patient. Diabetes, yes. They're going to have a worse outcome. 
They're going to get more wound infections. They're going to heal their donor sites slower. They're going to heal their skin grafts slower, and they have a higher mortality rate. What else? What else? What, what about cardiovascular? That's kind of a broad category. Okay, congestive heart failure. And as we go through resuscitation, we're going to see why somebody with congestive heart failure is going to take exception to a burn resuscitation. Coronary artery disease, if they've had a recent MI, because chances are I'm going to have to take them to the operating room. So an MI within the last six weeks, yes. Worse outcome, a higher risk of another perioperative MI. What else? COPD emphysema, you know, it's going to make it more difficult to take care of them, but statistically that doesn't seem to correlate with a higher mortality rate. They'll probably be in the hospital longer, and it's definitely going to complicate your care, but probably not a higher mortality rate, unless they're maybe on some specific drugs like steroids. Then it's the immunosuppression. So what kind of people are on steroids? You mentioned COPD and asthma. What else? Rheumatoid arthritis, collagen vascular diseases, transplant patients. The list is getting long and the people aren't looking uniform, are they? So you can't, some people you can look and tell that they're on steroids, but some people you cannot. So immuno, being immunocompromised, having uh, uh, AIDS, being a hemodialysis patient. And we'll talk about how do you resuscitate somebody who's on dialysis. What other kinds of patients can have a worse outcome? You know, it's going to make it more difficult to take care of them, but statistically, no. You'd think they would have a worse outcome. It's just going to really complicate your care. The age extremes. So under 5 and over 50. Those are the age extremes. Because remember, we're talking loss of reserve, loss of that nice physiologic reserve. Pregnant women and women between the ages of 30 and 59, age matched control with men, same injury, have a, have a almost a double mortality rate compared to men. Don't know why, we've done the study over and over and um, we're looking into why that is. So that's a, kind of an inhomogeneous group, isn't it? That's, that, the, that if you ask the M and the P, we kind of find out some things about them that make you think this patient going to have a worse outcome. How about the L? Last meal. And why is that important? You're getting ready to intubate them? Burn patients are trauma patients. So what do they do right before they have an event? A couple of pieces of pizza and a 40, don't they? And they're ready to give it back to you. As soon as, soon as you administer that paralytic, forget to put the cricoid pressure. Exactly. Okay. And then E, ample... E, events. If they can tell me what happened from start to finish, I'm much less concerned that I need to scan their head at that very minute, that they've got an epidural, a subdural, that they've had carbon monoxide toxicity. But if they have no idea what happened and the paramedics give us a history that they were pulled unconscious from the building, I'm not going to ascribe that to a heroin overdose. I'm going to ascribe that to inhalation injury, enclosed space, carbon monoxide toxicity until I know otherwise. And then miscellaneous, as we'll look at some of these patients, some are burn patients, they're all a little bit different. You know, they have some unique things about them.
So let's do A. We'll do A, B, and C, and then we'll go on to some other stuff. Airway. Which is, these things are listed in the textbooks, I tell you, as being, they're all listed as being the criteria these patients have inhalation injury. Which of these do you think? Facial burns? Just facial burns. Not necessarily, and that's the right answer. You have, they have to have something else. You know, patients with facial burns, if that's all they have, the incidence of their inhalation injury is very low. Patients that have an inhalation injury, about 70% of them have facial burns. What you don't know is which category, but just isolated facial burns, not necessarily. How about singed eyebrows and nasal hair? For the same reason, right. What if they're outside and either lighting the barbecue with gasoline, priming the carburetor with gasoline, and then, of course, what do you do? Yeah, put your head under there, and, okay, Ethel, fire it up. Of course, you get a facial burn, but you don't necessarily have an inhalation injury. How about carbonaceous sputum? Yes, this, this, exactly, as Dr. Bursch mentioned, that's a little bit more. Unconsciousness, yes. History of being, this occurred in a closed space, yeah, you can't get away from the smoke. And if they present with hoarseness or strider, absolutely. I, I had one doctor say, but they have asthma. Well, okay, but you know, for now, they have an upper airway that we need to protect in an emergent fashion, we can sort out the asthma later. So I would say that the, the bottom four are the ones that concern me. Does this guy have an inhalation injury? Sorry? Okay, so here, here's his new hairline back here, right? Not here. And eyebrows and eyelashes are singed. I guarantee you nasal hairs are cooked. Um, we're trying to figure out how to keep this pulse oximeter on. We've got some Velcro loosely trying to hold things in place here. He, this is a, here's a temperature probe. Here's the endotracheal tube. Um, the thing that tells me he's got an inhalation injury, look at these burns. Look at the degree of burn on his face. It looks like he's pretty cooked. So either his clothing was on fire, his skin was on fire, but the smoke was, he was breathing the smoke. So I would say he probably had an airway in jeopardy, met the criteria, and yes, needed his airway protected. Remember we said airway with C-spine control. This lady was in a vehicle that was struck by an 18-wheeler. Actually, it landed on top of her. The vehicle caught on fire. She was trapped inside. And indeed, she ended up with a cervical spine fracture on a, several levels and having a, oh, I don't know, a 66% burn or something like that. So what do you think? This is a little farther out now. You notice that she's had some surgery. She's got some cadaveric skin on and face looks like it's healing. Would that be an inhalation injury? Exactly. She was in the vehicle, trapped, couldn't get out. So yes, she would need her airway protected. Um, this young man actually worked in a chocolate factory. One of the roasters blew up and blew the end of a five-story building off, so it was pretty significant. He got to us 12 minutes after the explosion and had grabbed his neck like this, moving his chest rapidly, eyes wide, panicked, not moving any air. And his airway looks a little different, doesn't it? Okay. No attempt was made. You can see his eyes are swollen shut, his nose, his lips, you know, 
everything's very swollen up here. And in fact, we've even got an OG tube in him. So we just moved immediately to a surgical airway. And you can see, because there was an explosion protecting his airway, this is actually just the molten chocolate that ended up covering him. So yes, airway and in injury, and he, 12 minutes, and they couldn't intubate him. So th this is sort of my caveat when people say, well, I think I need to intubate him. I think I need to protect his airway. Then you do. You know, we would much rather take out an airway that didn't need to be there. After the patient gets here, we can look, we can assess, we can make sure we've, you know, let the cuff down, you know, that we've got a nice leak around it, that we do a nice bronchoscopy, but we'd much rather take out one tube too many than not, not have enough. So be conservative, which is actually be aggressive. If you think they need to the airway protected, they do. Okay, so that's A. B, you've decided to protect their airway in some way. You've intubated them or not. Oxygen for everybody. Why oxygen for everybody? Is there a reason? We don't know what their carbon monoxide level was, do we? Until we get a, until we get a carboxyhemoglobin level and actually get the blood gas. We don't just rely on the pulse oximeter because it might say 100 and it's really not. So we just put oxygen on everybody. If you were to stay in your current domicile, assuming it's not a toxic waste dump, there would be uh, probably 500 products of incomplete combustion that you would inhale as you were breathing that smoke in, just from your kitchen, your living room, your dining room, you know, the, the, the furniture, the bookcase, the TV. And it's really the products of incomplete combustion that you inhale that set up this pathophysiology in your upper airway, your lower airway, your alveoli, and it, it happens just within seconds. It doesn't take long. Carbon monoxide gets, I mean, that just diffuses right through the, right through the parenchyma, right? Causes tissue hypoxia. That one's reversible with oxygen, right? Uh, CO2, if it acutely rises, you get CO2 narcosis. And as it's rising, what happens? You get a little confused see a door and you go out the door only it's a door to the closet it's not a door to the outside and then you're overcome and so the firefighters find you dead in the closet because you thought you were going out the door hydrogen chloride mix that with a little water hydrochloric acid i definitely want to inhale that right mucosal irritation hydrogen cyanide we know that causes respiratory failure we used it in the gas chamber for a number of years um, Benzene, the stuff that makes steaks taste so good on the grill, mucosal irritation, and then aldehydes, nice carcinogens, severe lung damage. So these are just, this is just a sample of some of the products that it, a patient is going to inhale, lots of them toxic. And we make a big deal about it because someone who has an inhalation injury, um, that's mostly what our patients still die of. We have not improved outcomes from inhalation injury in the last 50 years. We have, we have taken cutaneous injuries to where we can, you know, we have stories of saving people with 90% burns, 95% burns, but they don't have inhalation injuries. You can have someone with an isolated inhalation injury and they die from that. They have no cutaneous injury. Um, these people get pneumonia, and obviously if you have an inhalation injury and you add pneumonia on top of that, now you have a fairly high mortality rate. And even if the patient survives, they're going to be in your intensive care unit. They're going to be on a ventilator. They're going to use up a lot of that $1 billion, right? Very expensive.
Okay, that's A and B. How about C? Well, we used to call it the Parkland formula. People had the Brook formula. There were probably a dozen formulas out there that we were using. But now we've all agreed that the Baxter formula, which, is, which Charlie Baxter made up when he was at Parkland, is probably the best one. He tested it on seven plastic surgery patients. It worked. He published it in 1974. We never did any testing on it. But you know what? It works. It's about the best we have. Um, it certainly is a hypovolemic resuscitation. And even when you, f when you adhere to it, the patients will still be hypovolemic. But um, we've agreed that it is about the best resuscitative uh, modality now. And in order to simplify things, we've taken away, you know, we used to have age, different ages, we added different things. And so now it's just four cc's per kilo per percent burn. What that means is 4 cc's times the patient's dry weight in kilos times their percent burn. So if somebody has a 50% burn, you don't multiply by 0.5, you multiply by 50. So we take that 200-pound person, give them a 50% burn, and now I see a problem because this is in kilos. Of course, everything we do is weight-based, metric weight-based. How many kilos is that? 30. He did that awfully fast, didn't he? I'm close to that weight. <laughs> you've, you've seen it. You've seen it. Yeah. Okay. How, how did, did Dr. Epperson do that in his head? Take half, half of the weight in pounds, subtract 10%. So half of 200 is 100, minus 10 is 90. Okay. Fantastic. If you multiply 4 times 90, as we said this patient weighs 90 kilos, times 50, you come out with 18,000. Yeah, 18,000 cc's. That's the amount of fluid we're going to have to give the patient in a 24-hour period, and that's from time, t time zero. So let's say, say they get to you an hour after this happens. Now you have 23 hours to still give them that 18 liters of crystalloid. But let's say they get to you, you know, 10 seconds after it happens. Half of that fluid, half of 18 liters, you're going to give in the first eight hours. Half of 18 liters is 9 liters. You're going to run that at, what, 1111? So basically 1,100 cc's an hour. So Mike's patient with congestive heart failure is not going to be very happy giving him that 1,100 cc's an hour. So what are you going to do, Mike? Uh, Just don't resuscitate him, right? No, you, you still have to, you still have to kind of give it. Uh, and if you're afraid they're going to fluff out their lungs, uh, you might have to So I'm hearing adjunctive management strategies and other monitoring strategies. And nowhere in there did I hear you say diuretics, I'll shoot you if you give you them diuretics, or to not resuscitate them. If you don't resuscitate them, they go into burn shock, the fifth kind of shock, and unresuscitated becomes unresuscitatable and then they'll die. And let's say your patient has end-stage renal disease and is on dialysis. You still give them the 1100 and dialyze them once a day, twice a day, whatever you need to do, right? Okay, so now you can see a whole category of patients that is not going to be happy with getting 18 liters of fluid because how much weight are they going to gain in a day? 18 kilos, exactly. That's just frightening, frightening. You feeding me to the lions? Is that what you're... I never knew it was so dangerous coming over here. 
and then based upon how their physiology is, then we're going to give them the next fluid over the next 16 hours. The second day, we'll start with either uh, head of starch, albumin, some other colloid. We have to wait until the leaky capillaries have gone away. When we talk about crystalloid, it's lactated ringers. Please, we, you know, we see the trauma patients and burn patients coming in and they've had, you know, six liters of normal saline and their chloride is 124. And, you know, then we're kind of fighting that for a couple of days. So lactated ringers. D5 for your standard resuscitation formula is not going to work because it doesn't have any sodium in it. So the patients need volume and they need sodium. And lactated ringers is the, is the best thing. No patients, it's not going to make their lactate go up. The only time you don't give lactated ringers, when? No, the, the potassium is insignificant. Profound hypothermia, because then they will not metabolize the lactate. So if their temp is down around 90 to 92, then you really cannot give them the lactated ringers, because they, then they won't clear it. Yep. How are you going to give it? Well, we, we like, this is a trauma patient. What do you put into trauma patients? Two large bore peripheral IVs and a cubit. It'd be nice if you put it through the unburned skin. We'd prefer that, but if you have to put it through the burned skin, okay. Um, a central line, um, if you have to, is something short and fat, because that's going to determine how fast you can infuse the fluid. So it's going to be a cordis. In an adult, a nice eight and a half French cordis. A triple lumen catheter is not a resuscitation line, because they're 18s, aren't they? Right. And they're long. Right? Central line is long. So you're much better off with a couple of peripheral IVs. For kids under the age of 8, an intraosseous is fine. If they come in with a functioning intraosseous, I would use it until such time as I can get peripheral IVs or some central access. But as long as they put it in the right place, then uh, intraosseous is fine. Some of the places where this Parkland formula, or the consensus formula doesn't work and you have to change or modify would be for infants. And when I say pediatrics, this is infants, 12 months or less. You now need to add their maintenance fluid, which is 1,500 mLs per square meter of body surface area in a 24-hour period. And then for infants, you also need to add glucose because you don't want them to become hypoglycemic. They don't have any stores. So you're going to need to make sure, and you can... You can make their resuscitation fluid D5LR if you want, and that'll take care of that. Electrical injury is tough. You might have a spot on the hand, a spot on the arm. It's a half percent total by surface area, and they don't need a resuscitation according to the formula, but maybe their whole entire arm is involved. Maybe the muscle's all dead. So it's an invisible injury, and the Parkland formula was never meant for that. The consensus formula is not meant for that. We also know that it doesn't help us with inhalation injury. So we actually add 50%. If somebody has, we know, an inhalation injury, you're going to have to add 50% to their resuscitation fluid. And the studies that we've done, it actually, rather than coming out at 6 mLs per kilo, it came out at 5.97. That's close enough to 6 for me. So that guy that we are given at 50% burn, we're giving 1,100 cc's an hour of fluid. Now we're giving 1,650 mLs of fluid. That's 1.6 liters an hour. That's just... A lot of fluid, yeah. So what do you think about this?
I call this a not-so-unique problem. We're supposed to talk about blast injuries. It's a nocturnal pharmaceutical entrepreneur. This is my friend Vinny, cooking meth in his backyard, and he blew up the shed. And he was found about 19 feet from the shed. Yeah. This is after we got him all cleaned up. What's going on with his face? Hmm? Sorry? Yeah. He's tattooed the cook, the mess. It becomes a projectile. It, you know, it becomes like shrapnel. And if you, if you actually get enough of the meth ingested in, in the patient, absorbed, um, the patients will die of unresuscitatable burn shock. They will get a lactic acidosis that we are incapable of resuscitating them from if they, if they absorb enough of this, and they'll die from it. Just a, a little aside, but is it the meth itself that explodes, or is it their, their fuel source that they're using that explodes? I really don't there's, a, there's a lot of, depending upon how meth is cooked, there's a lot of volatile products that go into it. So it could be the red phosphorus, it could be the anhydrous ammonia, it can be some of the, some of the uh, things they use to, to, yeah, the kerosene that they create to, to cook it, actually. Because, you know, they cook it in their kitchens and they cook it in their backyards and they make it in cars. And, you know, we have mobile meth labs now, you know, that are very tiny and, you know, people cook it out in the woods. And, so, but that's a good question. The statistics say that if someone has a meth lab in operation long enough, eventually over 50% of them will explode. So, so it's, a, it's a fairly hazardous... We see them before that happens. I, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure how the, the state officials were able to give me that information. I, I'm not sure I want to know. So listen, we're talking about burns. We should probably talk about the skin, right? Let's start talking about layers of skin, and then we can talk about how big is a burn and how deep is a burn. So you have lots of layers of skin, but in terms of the injury, you really have a first through a fifth degree burn, right? Why do we have skin? To keep you hydrated. So it keeps us mostly more hydrated than the environment. We're mostly water, okay? To keep us well or cooler than the environment. Thermal regulation depending upon the need, right? What else? Infection barriers. So intact skin, a fantastic uh, infection barrier. I mean, the stuff we're exposed to every day and we don't get it just because our skin is intact, right? What else? Now the good ones are gone. What else? Some, somewhat of a radiation barrier. Little, little vitamin D synthesis. Sensory. That's a protective thing, mostly, isn't it? Right? The skin's the largest organ in the body. That's a shocker. Um, it's the largest organ in the body for a reason. It's, it's a protective thing. Think about this. Do you have any other organ in your body that has to function over 99% every day, all the time, so that you can go about your business, come to work, do your leisure activities? You could function with one kidney fine. You could donate a kidney to a family member, right? You'd have a normal life, wouldn't you? Normal lifespan? 
no problem. You could donate a third of your liver to somebody and, right, normal life. Take out part of your small intestine, take out half your colon. You'd, you'd never miss it, right? Even your brain. Some of us don't use a large portion of it. <laughs> but your skin, my palm is 1% of my total body surface area. If I have a full thickness, third degree, 1% burn, that means that 99% of my skin is intact and functioning well. Am I here at work being on trauma call this week or the burn doc for the month? Are you here? No, you're on the OR schedule, aren't you? And if your hand is burned, we're going to graft it, and you're probably going to be off work for four to eight weeks. That's a 1% full thickness burn. So the skin is a very, very unique um, structure. It has to be at, at its best, and it has to be all the time. So where is where's a first-degree first burn? How deep is that? It's just your epidermis, right? Because there's, there's no blisters with a first-degree burn, nothing. Um, a superficial second-degree burn is going to be just involving the top layers of the dermis. And it's going to grow back in 14 to 21 days with minimal or no scarring as long as we do the right things. Right? That means it's blistered. A deep second-degree burn has now burned down. There's so few dermal elements left down at the... There's so few of these left to repopulate that the skin will be poor quality. It will be very scarred. And so we're actually going to treat it like a full thickness burn, third-degree being the dermal elements are completely gone, and now you're down to the sub-Q. Where's a fourth-degree burn? Where would that be then? Into your muscle, blood vessels. And a fifth-degree burn would then be your bone and your tendons, right? So to kind of get down in the fourth and fifth-degree burns, we're talking about the electrical injuries or prolonged heat for a prolonged period of time. You know, you're trapped under a car or trapped under something hot or, you know, hand is caught in something and it can't get out. All right. What makes a deeper burn depends upon how hot it is, depends upon how long it's in contact with you, and where on your body is it? So the same amount of heat applied to my palmar surface is not going to induce a burn. It might just be a little red and painful, might not even blister. But the thinnest skin I have is on my upper eyelids. If I apply the same amount of heat for the same period of time, I might get a third-degree burn there. So it depends upon where on my body that contact occurs and also the blood supply. Um, the elderly patients and obviously pediatric patients have thinner skin, so globally, a lesser contact that you might have that it simply causes maybe some red painful areas or even some blisters might cause a full thickness burn. All right, so first degree burn in the vernacular is what? Layman's terms? Yeah, it's just a sunburn. If it has a blister, it's a second degree burn. So a first degree burn is really that red couple of days heals with just some topical comfort things, some Tylenol or ibuprofen, take some liquids. Um, we don't even count it in the physiology. We're going to look about how big is a burn. We don't even count it. It's physiologically unimportant. How about this? This is, this is uh, you know, making, making form heating formula at 2 in the morning, and what does the kid do? <laughs> Knocks it 
out of, you know, and you're trying to juggle a kid and heat formula and, you know what I mean, do the bottle thing, and it spills on the baby. Actually, not even that hot, but gave him a burn. What degree do you think this is? The skin is disrupted, got a blister. Yeah, so it's going to be a superficial second-degree burn. We're going to clean this stuff off, and in 21 days or less, it's going to heal, no scarring. It's going to be fine. So superficial partial thickness. This is my friend Alyssa, the coffee mug in the microwave that, you know, it has bells and whistles and it whirs and it dings when it's done and it's fun. It's a fun toy, except she shouldn't be reaching in and pulling the coffee mug out. It's heavy, it's got hot coffee, and of course she drops it, spills the coffee all over herself. This is four days out now from the injury. She's got a couple open areas there and a couple there. Everything else is re-epithelialized. So what depth? Still superficial partial thickness because we're quite certain that within that 14-day window that this is going to re-epithelialize. And actually, at 21 days post-injury, she had even repigmented. You couldn't even tell she had a burn. So by doing the right things, a superficial partial thickness burn, minimal or no scarring. We have an adult. This, this is actually an old picture. Guy was driving one of those famous exploding Pintos. Minimal, minimal impact and the car explodes, right? So he's got burns up here, burns here. He's got burns here. You can see his legs were already wrapped. He's got some silvadine on him. And if you look right here, the skin's kind of burned, but it doesn't look charred, right? This part here looks pink. I can't tell whether it's maybe glisteny, you know, with the reflection of um, the light. So it's probably painful. It's moist. Again, this, this would fit into the partial thickness category. And this guy had a very large surface area burn, but required no grafting, it all healed, pretty minimal scarring. So this would still fit into the superficial or second degree burn. Then we got this guy. Um, this is not a superheated steam burn. There's, you can see the charring, so it's a flame burn. And so this is a full thickness or a third degree. Couple of things here. See the anesthesiologist messing around at the left radial wrist, putting in an art line. You can see he's putting it in right through burned tissue. Also, you can see we've put a resuscitation line in his groin, right through burn. You see, we, you can kind of see here, we just kind of cleaned it, put the resuscitation line in. I don't know if you can see it here. We also put a cortis in his right antecubit. And so those were our two resuscitation lines. A couple of days later, they it's a, it's a lot easier to tell, isn't it, what's a full thickness burn. And it's not all the same color. It's, it's easier to tell here now that this is brown, this is white, this is pink here, kind of pink here, but, and kind of whitish up here. But this is all full thickness. So this is a flame burn, all at least full thickness. You can see the evidence of the uh, uh, escharotomies on the leg and on the chest. So this would be a full thickness, third degree. Okay, so that's the depth of burn. How about how big is the burn, the size? We know that my palm is 1%. If it's contiguous and um, fairly large area, in the pre-hospital setting, we encourage the paramedics to give us the rule of nines. So an extremity, upper extremity is nine. My head is nine. My leg is a couple of nines. The front of my torso is a couple of nines. The back of my torso, same thing, a couple of nines. 
For the preambulators, the head is larger, so it's 18, and the legs are smaller, and that's where I get the difference. Once you get to the hospital, remember I said this is 1%. Once you get to the hospital, we use the Lund-Browder chart, and we actually get down to the half percent with the head progressively starting here and then going, going down from, from 19 down to 7, and then we actually can get down to the half percent. We color in what's affected and then add it up. And everything we do, the nutrition, the resuscitation, is kind of based on this number. So the, a physician will do it, a nurse will do it, and then just make sure we have concordance because if we're, if we're really far different, it means somebody's missed a burn in, in some way. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to maintain perfusion. Obviously, I don't have a little, you know, micro pipette that I can put in the cells and see if I'm perfusing. So what do I use? Uh, I, I, I use kind of indirect measures and indirect markers to hopefully know that I've resuscitated that patient. And again, I want normal burn physiology. I don't need unburned physiology, which means they're going to have a higher heart rate, lower cardiac output. Um, I am going to look at their pulse. I'm going to look at their urine output. Um, I'm going to look at their mental status, even on a ventilator. That's a, that's a good way for me to tell that I'm perfusing somebody. Um, Mike mentioned that that patient with congestive heart failure or on uh, uh, hemodialysis, that he would do some monitoring. We use the LIDCO in the burn unit. We used to use PA catheters, but they're invasive and they carry some risks. And now um, we use the LIDCO with, I'm, I'm hoping, some good success. We're, Dr. Wibbenmeyer is doing a study uh, to tell us if we can actually use the LIDCO to resuscitate burn patients. If we think that we should give them more blood, more fluid, just pound it in, right? Actually, supernormal is not better, and the outcomes are worse if you get their H&H back to normal and get their cardiac output and their cardiac index back to normal. What we're fighting, we're talking about burn shock. And, you know, the bigger the burn, the bigger the pathophysiological insult, and the more we're going to have to fix it. So the blood is redistributed, unfortunately, away from the skin, which is the very thing that we're trying to, trying to save. But what we can do is ameliorate burn shock. So with the, with the right resuscitation, we can treat it. What's happening is probably TNF-alpha. That's probably our, our bad actor here, causing our cardiac output to go down, peripheral vascular resistance to go up. And so it's, um, it's actually kind of confounds your ability to take care of them. Your cardiac index will be very compromised. Their blood pressure will be just marginal. You're trying to figure out, you know, do I add pressors? No, you just wait it out. We have lots of ways to monitor their resuscitation, vital signs. We're going to empty their stomach out, probably start feeding them, put a Foley catheter in, and something else we're going to do is assessing their circulation. One way to do it is their urine output. Infants 12 months or less, 2 cc's per kilo per hour. Again, goes back to that, you know, how much do they weigh? Kids, one cc per kilo per hour, and I kind of go up to the age of about maybe eight or nine when they get adult physiology, and then adults have cc per kilo per hour. So no, you don't, they don't need to put out 300 cc's an hour of urine. We haven't mentioned blood pressure in any of this, have we? 
We keep saying pulse. We keep saying cardiac index, but we don't talk about blood pressure. And that's because it's, it's probably inaccurate. You know, we use, we put in an arterial line. We might use a blood pressure cuff, but because the arm is going to be so edematous, we're going to get a dampened pressure. So we'll look at trends, but if a person is mentating and making urine, the absolute number of the blood pressure, we don't get excited that somebody has a map of 50. If, if, they, if everything else tells us that they're warm, their lactate is within reason, their bicarb is within reason, we're not going to give them anything to make their blood pressure better, to make the number better. One of the other things that we're going to do for somebody that has a big burn is to check the pulses and see how we're doing. We're going to check the arch. We're actually going to check the fingers, and we'll do that every hour. So we'll get the Doppler in and make sure that we can doppel the fingers. This urine might look dark, right? Remember I said it's a hypovolemic resuscitation. So we're not looking at, you know, it has to be nice and pale. We're looking at the absolute amount. And taken as a, as a whole, you're now going to take your Parkland or your consensus formula and adjust it up or down. That just tells you kind of where to start. If you got urine like this, this is something different. This is now concerning. This is either the electrical injury or some other concomitant trauma. And now we're worried about the hematin that's going to precipitate out in the tubules and force you to put somebody on dialysis, either short term or for the long term. Now you've got to flush their kidneys. And diuretics probably not the best way to do it, just more fluid. You could add an extra IV with a little bit of mannitol in it if you wanted it. But clearly giving them Lasix is not the, is not the key. We do want to just clear the urine. We don't send urine for studies. Just look at the urine. If it's yellow, it's clear, and you don't need to worry about it. I'm sorry, is bicarbonate? Yeah, bicarbonate be fine because that will alkalinize your urine just a little bit so that it doesn't precipitate out in an acid urine. So that, this would be one time where we might use bicarb. Yep, that'd be a good way to do it. Inadequate resuscitation, you know, we've talked about burn shock and excessive resuscitation. This is why we don't just dump in fluid because the edema actually is going to make it more difficult for you to take care of them, get them off the ventilator. It's going to worsen the depth of your burn because it's going to, it's going to uh, compromise your local blood supply. So it's actually not a tremendously benign thing to just dump in all the fluid. They're going to look like this anyway. We don't need to make it any worse. This is a guy, this is a 70 kilo guy when we started. He's not 70 kilos now, is he? Is he over-resuscitated? Actually not. We resuscitated him to, you know, the half cc per kilo per hour of urine and just barely acceptable blood pressure and heart rate. And this is sometimes what people look like the second 24 hours with a big resuscitation because they're going to get edematous anyway. We definitely need to redo our ties, don't we? Or we're going to end up with decubiti on the face. But that people get very edematous during this resuscitation period. What are we going to do about wounds? Well, we ask our pre-hospital providers to just put something clean and dry on. We like plastic wrap, saran wrap. I'm not hawking saran wrap, but some plastic wrap because it keeps the patient warm, keeps the air currents off that wound, right? Kind of keeps the fluid in a bit. And when they first come in, you can look at it right through the, you don't have to take the plastic wrap off. 
if you put sylvadine or aqueous sulfamylon or bacitracin, or if you put anything on it initially, we just have to wash it off when they get to a burn unit. And they don't need it in that first, you know, 30 minutes to, to three hours. Please don't put ice on. We have patients that come with ice bags ace wrapped onto a burn. And, you know, that zone of ischemia, they can't decide if it wants to become a zone of necrosis or not. You may have tipped it over and made the wound worse. So we ask our pre-hospital care providers to please, you know, no ice. If you must, cool water, but a small area, one limb or less, and it would be better if we just had some saran wrap. The burn unit, you know, it's a team approach. I've been talking about what we do, and, and I, I just put this in here to kind of um, remind you of the job that the nurses have, the therapists have, that, that everybody has. It really, really is a labor-intensive place. You know, we talked about the cost of taking care of these patients. Burn unit has the highest uh, nurse at bedside time in any 24-hour given period. Each nurse spends 14 hours at the bedside. So if a patient is here 24 hours in the burn unit, they will have a nurse physically at their bedside for a little over 14 hours. It's the highest of, of any place in, in this particular hospital. This is one of the reasons. Don't forget to give them something IV and give them something narcotic and don't be stingy, right? You ever had a small burn? Oh my God, I had a little thing, you know, I, I burned it on the stove right above my mitt, you know, my protective mitt, just a wee tiny little nothing where I touched it. I thought my arm was gonna fall off for a couple of days. I, I can't, I'm injured. You know, and I had a little burn like, like nothing. They hurt. Imagine some of the people that we're talking about how painful they are. So morphine, fentanyl, Dilaudid, whatever you want to use, but use narcotics and don't be chintzy. A couple of, just to end, a couple of the problems that we're going to see is heat loss. We talk about keeping them warm. You know, there's four ways that we as mammals can lose heat to the environment. And your burn patient loses heat in all four of these ways. And the problem is there's just nothing good about non-therapeutic hypothermia. It, it translates into pancreatitis and GI bleeding and, you know, uh, myocardial dysfunction and CNS dysfunction. It's just bad. So what we want to do is prevent it. We can warm the environment. We warm our operating room to 90 degrees for adults and 95 degrees for kids. The burn unit, if you go up there, you'll notice that the burn unit is about 80 degrees and the patient rooms are about 84 degrees. And hydrotherapy is warmer than that. Um, we'll warm the IV fluids. We can, in the acute phase anyway, we could even warm a body cavity or two if we have to. If that doesn't work, we could even put them on uh, CAVR. So lots of things that we could do. You see here in the operating room, we're just getting ready to move the patient from the operating room back up to the burn unit. I don't know if you can see, but we've used plastic everywhere to wrap this patient, and the patient will stay wrapped and then one extremity at a time, we'll take the plastic wrap off as the patient maintains their temperature. So all kinds of things we can do to prevent hypothermia. We also see patients that uh, maybe don't have burns. This is toxic epidermal necrolysis, Stevens-Johnson, little dilantin reactivity. Uh, mortality rates are much, much lower if these patients are treated with ex various exfoliative diseases if they're treated in burn units. And we get faked out. You know, we get the 
a fellow that said, oh, you know, I put some oil of wintergreen on my foot and I got this burn. And uh, it took me about three days to figure out that that just didn't make sense. So you can see these two little bloody sites here where we did little punch biopsies and discovered the pathologist told us that he had mycosis fungoides, which is cutaneous lymphoma. So he didn't have a burn at all, but, you know, ended up in the burn unit. And then we were able to send him to the oncology service. You know, anymore, we have patients of size. This young man weighed 724 pounds, and our equipment doesn't go that heavy. So what we had to do, this is a park bench that's out front by the bus stop. We brought it up on the elevator, and we dammed up the walls here and uh, took care of his needs. So right now, you know, we have a lift in one room up in the burn unit that will go to 1,000 pounds, and we have beds that will accommodate patients of 1,000 pounds. And when we do our burn unit renovation, we're going to increase that to 1,200 pounds just because we need to, need to be able to do that. Is that, that is not. It's not, actually. Um, so who needs to go to a burn unit? Here's a transfer criteria, again, from the American College of Surgeons and the American Burn Association. They didn't write these for Iowa or the eastern United States or anywhere special. Didn't say if you're in a big city. They said, if you want to have the best outcome, these are the patients that need to be seen in a burn unit. So this is a 10% partial thickness burn. Burns to specialized areas of function or cosmesis. So that's face, hands, feet, perineum, major joints. Any full thickness burns people with inhalation injury, and so that's either from smoke or from chemicals. Uh, chemical injuries, electrical injury, and lightning is an electrical injury. Burns with trauma, pediatric burns, the exfoliative diseases that we talked about, and some of the complex wounds. Uh, I know those of you who have been in the burn unit know that we really specialize in the, the necrotizing soft tissue infections, or nasty. We, uh, I, we're, we, we treat almost 100 a year now, so we're, we're getting some, some expertise in that. How do you know when they need to come by air? If they're 100 miles away or more, that's probably a good use of your, of your air medical transport, and that's when, that's when you should probably put them in the air. I can tell you that still, with all the things that, that we've told you, 4,000 people a year are going to die from their burns. Um, we talked about what the high-risk groups are, and, you know, in the burn community, we're trying to do some things to make things safer, like a fire-safe cigarette. The state of New York has passed that legislation. That's a cigarette that doesn't have any accelerant added to the paper, so if it drops on some kind of upholstery, it will self-extinguish. Um, we're trying to get the law reinstated about fire-retardant sleepwear for kids. That law has been repealed. I'm not very happy about that. And then here in Iowa, uh, about a year and a half ago, 16 months ago, passed a pseudoephedrine sales, um, restricting the sales uh, and controlling the sales. And it seems to have had a, a significant impact on uh, methamphetamine production. Methamphetamine use has not, doesn't seem to have gone down in the state of Iowa, but the production seems to. And the number of people who blow themselves up making meth seems to have gone down. So at least in the short term, we're pretty happy that that's been effective. And 
until there's a sudden outbreak of safety, I'm just not worried about it. So I'll be happy to answer any questions. There's a